Well, I just want to share a little bit about continuing, you know, here beginning of 2023. It's it's pretty funny. I go to a gym and the place is packed right now. <laughs> I've been going to the gym for years. It's always like that. January, they're packed. So this is kind of our version of how we think about the coming year. But it's a good time to kind of get your head around your practice in a new way and, and, and you know, look at how you continue. Because that's the that's the kind of the deal is just continuing no matter no matter how it seems and you know just in terms of a metaphor perhaps but you know driving across the country or climbing a mountain all those things you might do you know getting there isn't easy right it's it's hard the things that we want to do that are important are hard they take they take accomplishing, they take getting past barriers, they take effort. And Dharma is like that. That's part of why it's so precious to actually show up to be aware stuff that um Robin's been talking about. We all have versions of that. Not quite so intense, but you know, there's all kinds of things. So to know kind of what we're heading toward what we're heading away from, what we're letting go of, and how to think of some barriers on the way can be helpful. And I'm just going to offer a few things that might resonate with you, kind of tapping my own sense of stuff, and we'll have a chance to hear from everybody here. So, and it's not easy. You know, the, the stories of great spiritual masters are always fraught with stuff they had to do. It's because it's just because of themselves, just because of circumstance, this is not a this is not a an automatic kind of thing, and that's part of why we read the stories of great masters just because we learn from what they went through and how they managed it and what resonates with us because you know it's not easy because in this very nature of this mindfulness we're we're penetrating looking through looking at a whole lifetime or lifetimes of conditioning and trauma and fear and all that stuff. It keeps us from being present and awake. We're going uphill through all of that. And, you know, we've, we've, we've concretized around that over millennia, perhaps, and, and grasped onto ourselves and tried to make it be nice and try to push away what seems to make it hard and all those things. So to be able to cut through all that, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. And it's really beautiful. And, you know, I've been doing this for some years, like a lot of folks in different ways. A lot of people practicing for many years here from this seat. I've seen people, you know, appear, and then I've seen people disappear, and then sometimes they come back again, or they tell me I stopped practicing. And, you know, it's it's all good. But whatever we can do to kind of encourage continuation and get a sense of, you know, we understand better why we stop, then we can understand better why we can continue. And then some other people, there's other people here who just kind of have this, I don't know what they are, this stubborn nature, this uh, <laughs> something, but they just keep going and it pays off, you know? I mean, Robin, I'm just talking, sorry, Robin, but you know, Robin's been practicing a long, long time and look how she's handling the situation. It's beautiful. So, um, and, and, even though often it seems like nothing much is happening, incremental change sneaks up on you. 
You know, that's the way the practice works. It kind of sneaks up on you, and you find out that you're you're different than you used to be. How did that happen? Well, it happened because you were cultivating awareness moment by moment, and sort of in the it's inherent in that that we unpack the very things that tie us down. And people like that, there's a kind of lightness people have, a kind of kindness, a kind of ease in the world. There's no point in being so stuck anymore. And but this question of continuing, it's not like this new thing, like we, you know, we silly Westerners are confused. It actually goes back all the way back to the time of the Buddha. You know, it was totally the case then. So it should make you feel better, I guess, because you were in good company, company of the monastics at the time of the Buddha, who had trouble sometimes staying on the rail. And it's amazing to think. I mean, because it's hard in the 20, 21st century to, to to get a sense of what awakening might be like. What if you're actually with the Buddha day by day, like actually in the same place, in Jadavana Monastery or whatever, and you could see the magnificence of his realization, and yet people got off the rails and the Buddha had to kind of encourage them. And there's a discourse in the connected discourses called Two Kinds of Thought, where the Buddha said to a group of lagging monastics, he said, what should be done for his disciples out of compassion by a teacher who seeks their welfare and has compassion for them? That I have done for you, monastics. These are, there are these roots of trees, these empty huts. Meditate, monastics. Do not delay, or else you will regret it later. This is our instruction to you. Isn't that, it's kind of fierce. It's kind of fierce, and it's also compassionate. And he's telling these guys, well, there may have been, it sounds like these were monastic, male monastics, but he was telling them, you know, you'll regret it if you don't. But the regret it also means that there's possibility if you do. So, you know, if we're climbing over a mountain pass, what keeps us going to get over it? And for most of us, you know, the pulling side is some sense we have some innate sense. We wouldn't be here. There's something in us. We have some sense of what the Buddha saw that resonates with our own sense of what's possible. You know, we can see this possibility of freedom and openness untrammeled by conditions. It's called liberation. Describing his own awakening, the Buddha said, ignorance was destroyed. Knowledge arose. Darkness was destroyed. Light arose as happens in one who is heedful, ardent, and resolute. Isn't that amazing? Darkness was destroyed, light arose. So simple and so powerful. So that's, you know, on the pull side to get over the mountain. That's kind of what keeps us going, what we're going toward. And then what about leaving behind? I mean, for many of us, there's a sense we're motivated by being aware of how stuck we are in some part of our selves. It's not comfortable. We've got a sense of like the existential, you know, barrenness of life. Or we sense our tangles and we see ourselves reacting in situations where we'd rather not. We know it's coming from inside of us. And the fact that we don't have to ultimately is so cool. So we're kind of pushed from behind because it's unsatisfactory to be like that. And we want to show up, you know? We want to show up for the people we love. But we can't do that if our tangles are in the way. 
and we want to show up for ourselves. But we can't do that if the tangles are in our way. And, you know, the sort of, I don't know if it's a paradox, but the challenge of the path is we need to cultivate awareness when it's uncomfortable. And that's part of how we do the untangles. The very act of being aware means that the tangles emerge. We see them. Whoops, there you are. And then we have to step into it. But the good news is the more we do that, the more we see through it. And it doesn't take us down. That's the beauty of it. But nonetheless, it requires bravery. It takes a while for equanimity to actually blossom or for loving kindness to emerge no matter what, no matter how unpleasant this being has been to us to still have loving kindness for that being or for not clinging to really flower. But it does. It does, it does on the path. And life becomes more joyful and easy, easy in the end toward the arc of a life or a journey of practice. From the Dhammapada, number 24, says uh, the Buddha says, those who are energetically committed to the way, who are pure and considerate in effort, composed and virtuous in conduct, steadily increase in radiance. Isn't that cool? Steadily increase in radiance. Of course, this is sort of a tall order because, you know, <laughs> saying we have to be energetically committed and pure and considerate and composed and virtuous. So these are all things to aspire to. But it doesn't mean if you're not all those things all at once, forget it. It means that's the journey. So, you know, in terms of distractions, so this is the other part. So like what we're going toward, what we're going away from, what's in between? What's the problems that trip us up? Or why do people stop? You know, it's interesting. When someone practices for a while and then they just kind of stop, they kind of run aground, they kind of run out of steam. Sometimes it means they're having trouble keeping a sense of where they're going toward. And that's hard to do. It's really hard to do. There's no question about it. I mean, you got to work at it here in 2023, surrounded by the madness of materialism and the great fire hose of, you know, digital media. I mean, you got to work at it. So it's, it's hard. And I have great compassion for anyone that gets off the rails and delighted, you know, if they kind of go, oh, time to step ahead again. So I'll just offer, this is going to be short, but I'll just offer a couple areas of distraction that maybe will kind of resonate because on the one level of inner distraction just comes with, a, you know, the murk of our conditionings, just the very territory of us not yet being awakened. And we feel all this stuff, you know? We feel our sticky bits, and we think that's us. It kind of, all these, it makes up a sense of factors that we identify with, and we think there's something wrong with us, and we can kind of grind to a halt because of that. I mean, actually, there's no such thing. It's just, it's just conditioning, you know? And, and that's a part of the beauty of this practice is that the more you're aware, you know, you sit down to your practice, sometimes it's smooth, sometimes it's gnarly. But when it's gnarly and you're seeing things you wish you didn't have to see, 
that very process is when you're also seeing through them. Because most people don't even do that. You know, most people, they just dodge the bullet and they go entertain themselves or they go self-medicate or whatever they do, or they become workaholic, something. But just to keep showing up, that's how it unpacks. So simple. But it's a, it's the, the Buddha often calls this a tangle, you know, or a thicket. Calls it a thicket a lot, all these tangles, aspects of our sense of self. And it can be hard, hard to unwind. And what if it's other lifetimes, you know? What if it's traumas happen to you this lifetime, some other lifetime, and you got them in your heart, and you don't even know what they are? And it's hard, it's hard, but it's doable. One story about the Dalai Lama, I've always loved, I'm sure some of you have heard this, <clears throat> but it took place in the 1990 Mind and Life Conference in Dharamsala, where Sharon Salzberg asked him, asked the Dalai Lama, what he thought about self-hatred that so many of us Westerners are plagued with. And she writes, the room went quiet as all of us awaited the answer of the Dalai Lama, revered leader of Tibetan Buddhism. The question is, what do you think about self-hatred? Looking startled, he turned to his translator and asked pointedly in Tibetan again and again for an explanation. Finally, turning back to me, the Dalai Lama tilted his head. His eyes narrowed in confusion. Self-hatred? He repeated in English. What is that? What is that? So he didn't even know what it is. He couldn't even get his head around how it could be that we might feel that way about ourselves, which to me is like a gift. You know, it's like, oh yeah, it's like a place to recognize. Whenever we do that to ourselves, there's actually, you know, ultimately nobody to hate. <laughs> and the things that we think that about ourselves are just conditions that came from somewhere. They didn't come spontaneously. They came from something. So to be able to really internalize that on the path is truly, truly helpful. Because people do get messed up there. They give up. They think, oh, just, it ain't going to happen. I'm just too much of a train wreck. You know, people give up. But when we really start to understand there's absolutely no blame, there's absolutely nothing in any of the things that we don't like about ourselves that actually are ourselves. Just conditioning. Everything is a condition. And this is, you know, just all that kind of the negative side of selfing. When we are dissatisfied with the thing, self we think we are, think we're not smart enough, not handsome enough, not assertive enough, whatever it is, you know, we can get stuck there. But we can see through it. And it's, it's a subtle line, you know, because... We also have to be authentic. And we can't, there's this phrase, um, spiritual sidestepping, you know, where with the intention to awaken, people can just kind of try to get around the stuff they have to look at. And that doesn't work so well. I've been in, around, you know, cause I'm, <laughs> cause I'm old and stuff. Decades ago, I was in spiritual groups, some spirit, I wouldn't say whatever, whatever. But, where there was kind of a thing of everyone trying to be like kind of all shiny and spiritual and radiant and stuff. And a lot of times they were just dodging. They, they really weren't looking at what they had to look at. They had an aspiration that was wonderful, 
but they have to do the work. So we have to do both, you know? It's kind of a gutsy thing, this practice, and it's ultimately freeing also. So we have to show up and also have this, I don't know, faith confidence. It's a great book by Sharon Salzberg, as a matter of fact, called Faith. But it's not the kind of faith that we talk about in other kind of, where you have faith in stuff. You see that book? You're smiling. Really Isn't it? It's a wonderful. It's, she told me once it was her favorite book that she did. Yeah. And it's not, it's not, it's not having faith in stuff that doesn't prove itself. It's having confidence in our possibility. It's really beautiful. So confidence. But this thing we're doing with this practice, that's why I love it so much that it does ultimately unwind that stuff. Because even, you know, great, some pretty significant spiritual teachers can mess themselves up if they're not looking at the whole deal. People make ethical errors. You know, it's really sad. Some great people with a lot of wisdom and a ton of practice have, have messed up because they weren't also really paying attention to what was going on, to what they were thinking and feeling. So we got to step up. But this is a place where the kind of, this ultimate flexibility of mindfulness, you can really depend on it. And, and you know, every person here, I think part of the beauty is in this circle, how many we got online? We've got about six people here and somewhere I can't find a number. But anyway, we've got about 20 of us or something. Every person here, they're different. Their journey's a little bit different from everyone else's. And from that, we can get kind of a solace because, oh, this place where I feel stuck, this other person isn't stuck. This situation where someone approached me in a certain way and my buttons got pushed, that's not this other person's buttons. And that sort of means, well, okay, there's fine, but they're not inherent buttons, any of them, you know? So we really kind of help each other in that way. And, 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 and just to be mindful when the button is pushed is extraordinary. In the Dhammapada 226, it says, all pollution is cleared from the minds of those who are always vigilant, training themselves day and night, and whose lives are fully intent upon liberation. Isn't that powerful? By the Buddha, all pollution is cleared from the minds of those who are always vigilant, training themselves day and night, and whose lives are fully intent upon liberation. So that does speak to the heavy lifting part of this, though. You know, it's, it's, uh, it takes some, it takes some effort. It takes some application. It does. Climbing a mountain does. Getting a PhD does. Building a fancy stock car does. It'll do 200 miles an hour. But this is probably more worth it than that. But we gotta apply ourselves. So, you know, we've all got a slightly different aspect, but awareness or mindfulness is always at the core of solutions. And it, it kind of automatically sifts out the sticky bits. So it's almost like kind of a joy, like whatever you come up against in your practice, that's like the sticky bit of the moment. Your very process is bringing the things right up to you that you need to look at now. And it's kind of like your doorway. Oh, that's my doorway. That's the part. It's kind of unpleasant, but that's the doorway. So it's kind of like rejoicing when you see it. It's not a problem. It's a doorway. It's just a little bit painful doorway. But it automatically brings up what we got to see because that's the thing that's in the way of us simply being aware. That's why it comes up. 
And if we can keep our in the back of the minds that Dalai Lama's point of view, that self-hatred isn't actually, doesn't stick anywhere. He just couldn't fathom how any being could hate themselves because he knows that is just conditions. And he knows, you know, I've had a little bit of contact with him and there's this incredible sense where it's, it's like he's, he sees you more than anyone else has ever seen you. You know, it's, it's like, oh my God, it's, it's so extraordinary because it's just, he sees right through the stuff. In Tibetan tradition, they say spiritual life is like a snake in a tube. Once the snake has gotten into the tube, the only way is forward. You can't go back. A snake can't back out of a tube. And it's like that for us on the path. When we start, the more we start to see that conditioning is just conditioning, what, what are you going to go back and do? I don't know. What are you going to hang out in a patio and think that's the end of the story? A nice patio? You just can't. We have no choice anymore. We have to keep unpacking it and, and moving forward. It's, it's kind of relentless, but, you know, I think for so many, many people here, I know, the old distractions just don't work anymore. And there's, we sort of get to a point in the path where there's really no other option but going ahead. So snake in the tube, I love that. It really... Uh, <laughs> And then the last obstacle I'll share a little bit about is um, kind of losing track of inspiration or, or a vision of the Dharma to, to, to keep in mind that which pulls us ahead. That's It's hard. It really is. It's hard in 2023. It'd be way easier. And who knows about possible rebirth? You know, maybe in the 13th century or something, you were in Tibet. Who knows, y'all? Any person here? Or some village, or even now, if you were in Thailand right now, you know, be a Wat in your village, and there'd be some some bhikkhus uh, there, and maybe they'd be inspiring. So it's harder. It's harder here. But all the good news is, even in this area, there's all kinds of extraordinary people floating around this Puget Sound area. So this vision. You know, this sense of direction starts off with a view. The Lakefold Path starts off with a view, with a sense of direction. And in this case, this was, you know, radiantly embodied by the Buddha. That's part of why we take refuge. That's why we got a Buddha back there, because he helps us see what we can be. And when he awakened, he was so changed. I probably know the story. He came to uh, teach the three ascetics that he'd been with earlier on in his life before he was awakened. And they thought he'd gone off to be a glutton because he started eating. They were still starving themselves. And they said, oh, my God, here's the glutton Buddha, the glutton guy coming. Let's just, we're, just, we're not even going to stand up. He's, and then he came up and his radiance was so amazing, they all stood up involuntarily and realized, oops, something has happened here. So... You know, in a monastic setting, there's a situation where people can be exposed to this Dharma view of the teaching. And there's kind of an osmotic quality, transmission. Mahayana tradition, they call it transmission. And it's important on the path. You know, it's important. It's hard. It's hard for us here. We, we lay people. But nonetheless, it's important to keep that in mind or see what you can find. 
because it does help pull us forward. It doesn't, here in the 21st century, it doesn't mean Dharma transmission is impossible. It just takes some intelligent targeting. And we as a collective, you know, we're all doing that with each other right here. I mean, that's part of the beauty of a circle like this is that's all here. It's not about me. It's just about this Dharma shared. And I've had, you know, I'm because of, <laughs> I keep saying being old. But anyway, I've had a good fortune to see this at work in multiple traditions. And when I was way back when starting practice, some of the great masters were still alive. Chagatukul Rinpoche, Kirti Senchar Rinpoche, who was Galupa, Ajahn Burudasa, who was in um, Thailand, had a chance to be with them at different times, and they just radiated their attainment. You could, it was tangible. It was extraordinary. It, it was it was almost like people would get real quiet. You just couldn't babble on about trivialities in the presence of such a being. <laughs> and that's important, you know, to, 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 to any way we can kind of find ourselves in that situation or put ourselves in that situation or seek out that kind of situation. That can help us, as we're climbing the mountain, keep our compass pointed ahead. And, you know, even in the time of the Buddha, I mean, there were all kinds of people. You could choose to be around the Buddha or Sariputta or Moggallana, the great awakened, his two great awakened beings, or you could go do trivial stuff just like now. It wasn't that different 2,600 years ago. So it is always a, a question of, of choice. And there's even these uh, interesting, a couple of interesting suttas, as you probably know, he had... Two great kings were sponsors, and then the the son of the one. Well, anyway, so I won't go there, but 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 there's one particular sutta where he gives this long, beautiful, incredible just explanation of the path to one of the kings, and then at the end he says, and it's like this incredible thing in the sutta, and then at the end the king says, "Oh, you know, I got a lot of appointments, I got to go," and the Buddha says, "As you will, great king." But he kind of like so I, he didn't take the, he didn't take it he coulda he coulda. In 2017, I was in a Mokau Ganj, uh, which is up northern India, and Tenzin Palmo, extraordinary, extraordinary Western nun, fierce, was giving teachings. I had a chance to wander into the woods where yogis are still meditating in little stone huts up there, and it was one yogi in robes, Tibetan Lama. And he had this gleam in his eyes, this energy in his eyes. It still struck me. Just this, this moment, you know, you could feel who he was. So, you know, here in 2023, here we are in Kirkland. Just to keep turning toward that. Keep seeing what you can do that all, whether it's online or in person, whatever flash brings you ahead. And then I'll just make a few quick tips and then, uh, I have four little tips. So one is in terms of your own practice, you know, don't give up, continue. That's what Chagatukul always said, don't give up, don't give up. And and focus on growth, not experience. Because people, and I'm, I do that to myself sometimes, I say, oh, that meditation wasn't so good. I must be messed up or something. But it's not like that. You know, focus on growth. Just have your frame. How am I going to grow? Who can I become? 
And it's not like you're making yourself into anything. You're just shedding everything that's in the way. So, so don't, don't think about experience. Almost take the word spiritual experience like out of your vocabulary. Just go stick it off somewhere and turn your being towards change. And it's not just for us. You know, that's one of the beautiful Mahayana things to be dedicated to awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. This is the greatest gift we can give to the world, to our friends in Kiev, and also to those to whom we are closest. You know, the very people, our children, our partners, our whoever, the more that we can be present, then the more we can hear them and and love them. Probably the two best things that they need. So... This isn't just about us. So just stay with it, you know? Just stay with it and accept that onions, peeling the onion, they have pleasant and unpleasant layers, or at least they have colors. They have something. And if it seems unpleasant, don't let that stop you. That's the place to not be stopped, you know? That's the place to not be stopped. Just keep going right then. It's like, oh, this is unpleasant. This is the place to not be stopped and keep going. Because that's when we're going to inherently stop if we think this is supposed to feel nice all the time. Think of it as a veil parting. The second thing is, you know, where I was kind of what I already said, but wherever you can, avail yourself of the chance to meet or hear from teachers or persons on the path, friends on the way who have some kind of realization, who have some sense that they've moved along a bit and that they can help pull you along and they can help light something inside of you that you can recognize. You know, much of the... Because there's like a mirror thing happening. If we can recognize our own true nature a little bit from contact with someone, either in person or online, that keeps us going. So choose that, you know. And, you know, so much of the stuff in media is about, like, people who are being entertaining. I don't know what they're being. They have a nice voice. They look attractive or whatever they do. They're tricky. But that's not actually changing us. I mean, my wife and I were moving to another place and we we're just going to let go of the TV. We have this. We don't ever watch it anyway. So why have the silly thing? You know, but I kind of feel happy for that, that we just don't care. (laughs) And so, you know, those choices we make and transmission is amazing. So work on that. Third thing is just realize opportunities for insight in every moment. You know, no moment of mindfulness is wasted. So this could be the most mundane thing, getting on the bus and feeling your foot when you get on it. You know, picking up a spoon and feeling the metal when you pick it up. Or it could be being face-to-face with the person that you're closest to in a rather heated moment and actually feeling the burning in your gut that wants to retaliate but feeling it instead, that's amazing. So that's an insight in every moment that really stretches us. So think of it, you know, do the cushion thing. Absolutely. Meditate every day. So proud of Robin for doing that in the ways that she can. So, you know, do that. But also keep looking for places where you can just step up a little bit Work your mindfulness, especially when it's hard, because that's a doorway. And, you know, how do I say? If you think of the Dalai Lama, 
we almost ex- we almost expect is that the right word we expect that he is going to have this deep equanimity he'll be an ocean of compassion no matter what the situation that's the very nature of his awakened being we kind of expect that so we can't make ourselves be that but nonetheless it draws us towards manifesting exercising utilizing this practice in our day-to-day lives in every moment because the Dalai Lama doesn't just have sitting moments and the rest of the time he's just doing karaoke or something. You know, he doesn't. He's incredibly present all the time. <laughs> and so it's an opportunity for us to kind of emulate that, to see the power of that. I can't bear it. I for, I forgive me, some of you. I've, I've, there's a little story here. I know I've told several of you have heard before. I can't, can't resist. I was, uh, I was just, God, I can't keep track of the time anymore. 1993. It was 1993. Dalai Lama came to Seattle, and um, there was a couple-day Chenrezig empowerment, two-day Chenrezig empowerment, and a bunch of other stuff. And this was like a long time ago, 1993, and he was far younger, and security was way less than it is now around him. So basically, security was he had one guy with him from the Tibetan side. There were two police officers, and then the Tibetan the Dharma community had organized our own security operation. We had walkie-talkies. We had all kind of stuff. So we were kind of there with him. So anyway, so he, I guess Senator Murray was, geez, he's been around a long time. She was, uh, I can't remember the building, but it's some great big auditorium or something on Mercer or in the Seattle Center. So he was going to talk about, you know, being compassionate in the world and some, not exactly political, but in the, in the world sense. And she was saying something before. Patty Murray was there. She was saying something beforehand. And he was off backstage down. In fact, we were off down in this sort of grotty little area. So there was basically a Dalai Lama, one guard, two cops, and three of us. It was like six people all standing there from the Dharma community. And of the six, one of them, and here's my judgmental nature, was kind of a dweeb. He was just this goofy guy. I know, right? But he was just, this is my judgmental. He was fine. He was fine. But in my own judgmental mind, he wasn't cool. He was this kind of funny guy, and I was kind of not paying as much attention to him as to the cooler people and all that. And he had this little, uh, this little kind of phone, this little kind of, I don't know what it was, some kind of thing on his finger that would measure his pulse with some little digital watch from 1993. And the Dalai Lama, in the middle of it, he's about to go on stage. He should be looking at his notes, or he could have been uptight, or he could have been whatever. Dalai Lama, like, pivots to this guy and says, oh, what is that? And asks him about his watch. And I was like, oh, my God. It was so incredible because he just poured love into that person. This is this kind of, this guy, I don't think people wouldn't notice him. He was a very unnoticeable person from in terms of lay life, in terms of how we are. He was not attractive. He was whatever. Dalai Lama just saw who he was ultimately and just poured love into that. The, the, the watch thing was just a ploy to get a, his attention. I was just, I mean, it never left me that I was so humbled I, just to recognize my own judgmental nature and then see how he just blew through it, you know, with this incredible compassion. So I'm, I'm suitably embarrassed, but that's okay. But the point is <laughs> that... In this moment, that was an extraordinary moment of mindfulness that he completely used backstage, whatever. So there aren't any mundane moments. There flat out aren't. You know, we can use them. There are no mundane moments. It's part of the secret.
And lastly, never forget how impermanent life is, how certain death is. You know, that's the deal. We have a certain amount of time here. Maybe some of us will be 100. Some nun just died. It was like 116, or, but she did. Doesn't go on forever. So this is not a gloomy thing, but a vivid thing, you know, to really use this time we got. Don't just go on autopilot. The years tick by pretty fast, I guarantee you. And uh, so just use the time well, fully and vividly, and, and keeping that sense of, I'm a former journalist, so I think in terms of deadline, <laughs> funny phrase, right? Keeping the idea of deadline in mind can spur us to practice. Because the cool thing about the path is, you know, if what we cared about most was being, I don't know, a pole vaulter, probably everybody here would be past their prime, pole vaulting wise. <laughs> it would be going downhill from here. But the Dharma is not like that. It keeps growing. I mean, there's a great book. I know I mentioned it. Uh, Anyway, How Great Beings Die, Graceful Exits, about a whole bunch of little like little vignettes of incredible beings and how they manifested in the last, the moment of their death, the last moments of their life. And all these great beings, they're like, they're brilliant. They're powering through. They're extraordinary. So same with us. Okay. I think that's it. One of my first teachers, Venerable Genla Rupa, used to say we should practice like our hair's on fire. And so we should to uh, get over the mountain. So let's sit for a minute or two.